Section 3 of The Red Lamp by Murray Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. June 22nd. All houses in which men have lived and suffered and died are haunted houses. But then, all houses are haunted. Why, then, did Jock refuse to enter the house at Twin Hollows today, but crawled under the automobile and remained there, a picture of craven terror, until our departure? This old house where I am writing tonight undoubtedly has seen the passing of more than one human soul, yet Jock moves through it unconcernedly, his stump of a tail proudly upraised, his head unbowed. His attitude tonight, too, is even slightly more flamboyant than usual, as though to testify that although he may have given the impression of terror during the day, we are laboring under a misapprehension. He but sought the shelter of the car for coolness. He may see further into the spectrum than I do, I said to Helen Allaire the other day, and she countered, Yes, but what does he see? Old Thomas met us in Oakville with the keys, and we drove out to the house. I sensed in Jane a reluctance to enter, but she fought it back bravely, and we examined it with a view to our own occupancy. It is in excellent condition and repair, although the white covers over the library furniture and in the den behind gave those rooms rather ghostly appearance. Jane, I saw, gave only a cursory glance into those rooms, and soon after, pleading the chill inside, moved out into the sunlight. Edith, however, was enchanted with it all, and said so. She danced through the house, shamelessly courting old Thomas, selecting bedrooms for us all, and peering into closets, and I caught up with her at last on the second floor, looking at the boathouse on the beach beyond the marsh. "'What's above it?' she asked. "'Rooms?' "'When the old sloop was in commission, the captain slept there,' I told her. "'How many rooms?' Two, I think, and a sort of kitchenette. "'Are they furnished?' "'Old Thomas, being appealed to, said they were, "'and Edith's face assumed that air of mysterious calculation "'which I have learned to associate with what she calls an idea. "'Whatever it was, however, she kept it to herself, "'and I left her selecting a bedroom for herself, "'and putting into it sufficient thought to have served a better purpose. "'Her surroundings and belongings are very important to her, "'and yet I believe she is in love with young Halliday, "'who can, so far as I see, give her neither.' It is a curious thing to go into a house left, as Twin Hollows has been, without change since old Horace died, and not to find him there, his big armchair near the fireplace in the library, his very pens still on the flat-topped desk which is the only modern piece in the room, the books he was reading still on the desk rack. I had a curious feeling today that if I raised my voice I would hear the little cough which was so often his preliminary to speech from the den beyond. The den, too, is unchanged. Note. From an ugly room... The original kitchen of the old house, he had made it a sort of treasure house at early American old pewter, brought over perhaps in ships which had anchored in the very bay outside, of early framed charters and deeds of land, signed by English kings and hung on the walls above the old panelling, which he himself had found somewhere and installed, of quaint chairs, a settle, and an old chest, hooked rugs on the floor, and old glass candlesticks. I threw back the covering which protected the desktop and sat down at it, just there, in all probability, he had been sitting when the fatal attack took place. He may have felt it coming on, but there was no one to call, poor old chap. We had not been overly close, but the thought of him, writing perhaps, or reading, the sudden consciousness that all was not well, an instant of comprehension, and then the end. It got me, rather. I think he had been reading. Among the other books on the desk was the one with a scrap of paper thrust in it to mark the place, and a pencil line drawn on the margin of the page to mark a paragraph. But it gives me rather a new line on him. I had always thought that his purchase of a house locally reputed to be haunted, a reputation considerably enhanced by the Riggs woman's tenancy, was a rather magnificent gesture of pure Calvinism. But tonight I am wondering. The marked paragraph is in a book entitled Eugenia Riggs and the Oakville Phenomena, and I have brought it home with me. It is a creepy sort of thing, and I find myself looking back over my shoulder as I copy it into this record. Quote, 
It is to be borne in mind that the room was always subjected to the most careful preliminary examination. Its walls were plastered, and no doors or windows, see photograph, were near the cabinet. As an additional precaution, strings of small bells were placed across all possible entrances and exits, which were also closed and locked. It is also to be remembered that the medium herself was always willing to be searched, and that this was frequently done by Madame B. This had been done on the night when the hand was distinctly seen by all present, reaching out and touching those nearest on the shoulder, and later making the impression in the pan of soft putty left in the cabinet. It is to be borne in mind, too, that, except when the controls wrapped for no light, there was always sufficient illumination for us to see the medium clearly. A small red lamp was found to offer least disturbance and was customarily used. There was occasional fraud, but there were also genuine phenomena. The last few words are italicized. So tonight I am wondering, does one find, as life goes on, that the lonely human spirit revolts at the thought of eternal peace and craves a relief in action in the life beyond? Would I not myself, for instance, prefer even coming back and lifting the little Pettengill's table to the unadulterated society of the saints? June 23rd. There is a division in my family. Edith has come out with her plan which is to spread out, as she puts it, in the main house at Twin Hollows, and to let Warren Halliday spend his vacation at the boathouse. Renting it to him, I suppose, I inquired over my breakfast bacon. Renting it, she said indignantly. You wouldn't have the nerve to ask money for that tumble-down place, would you? And anyhow, you can't get blood out of a stone. There is a terrible frankness about Edith at times. But Jane is as equally determined not to occupy the house at any cost. It was written all over her yesterday, and there is still an ominous set look about her mouth. Between them, I am more or less trimming skiff. If Jane would be more open, it would be easier. If she would only come to me and say that she is afraid of the house, I think I could reassure her. It may be that that silly photograph is still on her mind. But why would she not even stay in the house yesterday? She went out into the garden and picked some of its neglected flowers instead. It's a pity not to use them, she said, and then looked at me with such a white and pitiful face that I put my arm around her. I must have been a very bad husband, I said, if you think I am going to force you to live here. Who am I, I added, against you and Jock? But she did not smile. If you want to come here, she said, making what I felt was a painful concession, why couldn't we live at the lodge? It is really quite sweet, and we could rent this. Would that be quite moral under the circumstances? I'm not asking the circumstances, I added hastily. I'm simply putting the question. We could ask a lower rent. There is, I sometimes think, a fundamental difference in the ethical views of men and women. To Jane it is quite proper to let a house with what she believes is a most undesirable quality if she lowers the price. She does not suggest advertising, one house furnished, reputed to be hunted. On the contrary, she proposes to entice tenants with a lower rent, and once having got them there, to be able to say, in effect, What would you? The house is cheap. True, it has certain disadvantages. I am sorry you have been bothered, but you have saved money. Aside from this viewpoint, however, the idea is sound enough. We can be comfortable at the lodge, and, let me always be frank in this journal, I may have my occasional yearnings for adventure, but they have their limitations, and the talk Edith has reported as taking place between old Thomas and herself yesterday after I left them has revealed them to myself. Edith, on the contrary, finds the situation really thrilling. It's a good house, yes'm, said Thomas, for them as likes it. I wouldn't be caught dead in it at night myself. I hope you never will be. It ain't nothing you can put your finger on, said Thomas. It's just knocks and raps and doors opening and closing, but I say that's enough. It sounds like plenty, said Edith. Of course it may be rats. It's a right husky rat that'll open a closed door, and I ain't yet seen a rat that could move a chair. Besides, I ain't never heard that rats are partial to a red light. Now see here, Thomas, Edith reports herself as saying, 
Either you've said too much or you've said too little. What about a red light? Nothing scandalous, I hope. Stripped of further trimming, it appears that some two years ago a small red lamp was installed in the den at Twin Hollows, and is now still there, Thomas having declined to destroy it for fear of some dire and mysterious vengeance. Not for light as far as I can see, miss, he said. I never seen him read by it, but put in it was, and the night it first came Annie Cochran said something came into her room and pulled the covers off her bed. How shameless, said Edith. More than that, he went on stolidly, the furniture was moving through the house all night, and the next morning she found the tea kettle sitting in the pantry, and tea had been made in the teapot. But surely she did not begrudge the poor things their tea, Thomas. It must be thirsty work moving furniture and chasing about wrapping on things. She had left the kettle on the stove, and there it was, he said, doggedly. Like the lady of color who said to the judge that she had just sort of lost her taste for her husband, I begin to lose my taste for this lamp, but one wonders whether its evil reputation is not a survival from the days of Mrs. Riggs when, quote, a small red lamp was found to offer least disturbance and was customarily used. Close quote. June 24th. Edith has lost and Jane has won. We shall spend the summer at the lodge. But I feel that Jane's victory brings her no particular pleasure, that even to go to the lodge is a concession she is making against some hidden apprehension. Yet to show just how baseless are most of these things, this morning Clara had been in a low mood and I heard Jane inquire the reason. I dreamed last night that I'd lost a tooth, said Clara. That's a sign of death, sure, Mrs. Porter. Edith, however, has won in one way. We're on holidays to have the boathouse. We motored out together today, I to look over the lodge more carefully, and Halliday to expect his prospective quarters. He is thoroughly likable, a nice, clean-cut young fellow, not too handsome but manly, and with a good war record, and badly cut up at his failure to find a job for the summer. I'd do anything, he said. Some neckties are necessary, but I can't even land that, although, he forced a grin, I have a nice taste in neckties. On the way out I told him something of the history of the house, and a little, very little, of Jane's nervousness concerning it. Of course, he said, it's all nonsense, but a surprising number of people are going bugs on it. Darn uncomfortable nonsense, too. It's not only that, sir, it's dangerous. Imagine what a general conviction of this sort would do. Think of the fellows who find things getting a bit thick for them here, and how quickly they'd hop out of it. Think of the crimes it would cause, and take wars. Nobody would care whether he lived or not. Talk about civilization going, why the whole darn populace would go. In view of that conversation, it was interesting later that day at the lodge to have old Thomas intimate that Uncle Horace had not died a natural death, but had seen something which had caused it. As a matter of fact, he brought out certain rather curious facts which appeared to have been somehow overlooked or at least considered unimportant at the inquest. For instance, he had been writing at his desk when the attack came on. His pen was found on the floor, but there was no sign of what he had been writing, save for a mark on the fresh blotter, as if he had blotted something there. The most curious thing, however, according to old Thomas, was the matter of lights. When Annie Cochran found him the following morning on the floor beside his desk, all the lights were out, including his desk lamp. But the red lamp was going in the den, said old Thomas. It didn't make much light, so nobody noticed it until the doctor came. He saw it right off. I'll leave it to you. What shut off that desk lamp? I rather gathered from Thomas that the ill repute of the red lamp was spread over the countryside. The house had a bad reputation to start with, which Mrs. Riggs' tenancy did nothing to redeem, and now comes Annie Cochran and her red lamp, and a fairly poor outlook so far as renting the property is concerned. There has been, according to Thomas, considerable interest as to whether we will inhabit the house or not, and if ever I saw relief in a man's face, it was in his when I announced the decision. As Halliday observes, it would be interesting to know if either Annie Cochran or Thomas has ever heard that red is the best light for so-called psychic phenomena. The lodge proves to be weatherproof and in good condition, and the boathouse quite livable, with the addition of a few things from the main house. It will need thorough screening, however, on account of the mosquitoes. Note, 
It is necessary for the sake of the narrative to describe the boathouse. It is built up on piles, which raise it above tide level, and the dory and canoe belonging to the house are stored in the lower portion of it in the winter. The old sloop, however, not in commission for several years, was at this time anchored to a buoy about a hundred yards out in the bay, and showed the buffeting of wind and tide. Across the salt marsh, from the foot of the lawn, extended a raised wooden runway which led to the boathouse and the beach. This walk also prolongs itself into a sort of ramshackle pier, from which a runway extends to a wooden float. At the time of our visit, examination showed the float badly in need of repair, a number of the barrels which supported it having more or less gone to pieces. It was, as will be seen, during Holiday's repair of this float, that he made that discovery which was later to see the commencement of my troubles. All in all, Jane's scheme is practical, although Edith is frankly disappointed. I would have looked so sweet on that terrace, she says, and makes a dreadful face at me. I have asked her to say nothing to Jane about old Thomas's ravings, as she calls them. She has agreed, but accuses me of extreme terror, and maintains that I am merely putting the responsibility on Jane. You know perfectly well, she says, that you believe in ghosts, and if you rent that house, old Horace ought to come back and haunt you. But she is secretly pleased. She sees herself in the cottage, in a bungalow apron, presenting a picture of lovely but humble domesticity to young Halliday, and thus forcing his hand. For if I know anything of Edith, she is going to marry him, and if I know anything of Halliday, he is going to marry nobody he cannot support. It may be an interesting summer. Curious about that lamp on the desk, the night the poor old chap passed out. Of course he might have turned it out and risen to go upstairs when he felt the attack coming on, but wouldn't he have laid the pen down first? One would do that automatically. It's a pity the blotting pad has been destroyed. June 25th. The last, or almost the last, word Uncle Horace wrote the night of his death was danger. But how much significance am I to attach to that? We speak of the danger of taking cold, of levity in the lecture room, of combining lobster and ice cream. To poor old Horace there would have been danger in overexertion. In that sense of the word he was always in danger. But it was not a word he was apt to use lightly. Yet what conceivable danger could have threatened him? This morning, clearing my desk preparatory to our exodus, I resorted to an old trick of mine. I turned over my large desk blotter and presented a fresh and unblemished side to the world. It came to me then that thus, probably since the invention of blotters had neatness been established with a minimum of effort, and that it might have been resorted to by Andy Cochran. After luncheon, I started to twin hollows with the back of the car piled high with a varied assortment of breakable toilet articles, a lamp or two, and a certain number of dishes. The lodge was open, and Annie Cochran vigorously cleaning it, and having deposited my fragile load there, I wandered up to the house. Thomas was cutting the lawn, with a mare borrowed for the purpose pulling the old horse mower, and the Oakville constable, Star, who was also the local carpenter, was replacing old boards with new on the raised walk to the beach. What with the sunlight the putt-putt of a two-cycle engine and a passing motorboat, a flock of knockabouts and sloops poised on the water like great butterflies, and the human activities about, the absurdity of abandoning the old house to some unappreciative tenant grew on me. Here you're going to live in the lodge, said Starr, spitting over the rail. Mrs. Porter feels the main house is too large for us. He eyed me sharply. Yes, he said. Pretty big house. Well, I'm in a dollar on it. A dollar? I bet you'd never live in it, he said, and there was a furtive gleam of amusement in his eye as he marked a board preparatory to sawing it. It's my opinion, Star, I said, that you people around here have talked this place into disrepute. Maybe we have, he said noncommittally. Mr. Horace Porter lived there for twenty years, and died there, he reminded me, of chronic heart trouble, so the doctor says. But you don't think so? I know he had got a right forcible knock on the head, too. I thought that came from his fall. Well, it may have, he said and signified the end of the conversation by falling to work with his saw. I waited, but he evidently felt he had said enough, and his further speech was guarded in the extreme. 
He didn't know whether Mr. Porter had been writing or not when it happened. No, he'd been the first to get there, and he had seen no paper. Asked if he had had any reason, any experience of his own, to make him wager we would not live in the house, he only shook his head. But as I started back, he called after me. I don't know if there's any truth in it, he said. But they do say on still nights that he's been heard coughing around the place. I ain't ever heard it myself. So Thomas thinks that Uncle Horace was frightened to death, and Starr intimates that he was murdered, and all this was seething in the minds of these country people a year ago, without it reaching me at all. There had been no inquest, simply, as I recall, Dr. Hayward notifying the coroner by telephone, and giving organic heart disease as the cause. I was, I admit, startled this morning as I turned back toward the main house, but I knew the tendency of small inbred communities to feed on themselves for lack of outside nutriment, and by the time I had reached the terrace I was putting Starr's statement about a blow in the same class with the cough heard at night. I stood looking out over the sweep of lawn, and the words occurred to me of that other ancient Horace, confirmed city-dweller that he was. There was ever among the number of my wishes a portion of ground, not over-large, in which was a garden and a fountain, with a continual stream close to my house and a little woodland besides. The gods had done more abundantly and better for me than this. So I felt that the gods had done even better for me than I had thought. My little woodland to my left as I faced the sea covered thirty acres, extending beyond Robinson's Point. True, I had no fountain, but I had a garden of sorts. And I had a ship, which apparently the old Roman had never dreamed of. The old sloop bobbed and swung in the wash of a passing tug. I turned and went into the house to find that any Cochrane had turned the blotter, and that the last word the poor old boy had written had been, Danger. June 26th. Women are curious creatures. Throughout the winter it is of vital importance to Jane that her teacups are old Chelsea, and that the mirror over the hall table is pure early colonial, even if it does raise my right eye an inch or so. The Queen Anne chairs in her bedroom, the Adam sideboard in the dining room, apparently divide her affection with me, and she has been known to make considerably more fuss over a scratch on the Sheraton cabinet than over a similar injury to myself. We are settled tonight in the lodge, and whatever Edith may say as to its romantic outside appearance, within it is frankly hideous. It is all the cottage should not be. From the old parlor organ downstairs to beds that dip in the center above, it is atrocious. Yet tonight Jane is a happy woman. Can it be that women require rest from their possessions, as for instance I do from my dinner clothes? That it gives them the same sense of freedom to dawn, speaking figuratively, a parlor organ and the cheapest of other furnishings, as it does me to put on my ancient fishing garments? Or is Jane simply relieved? I confess that tonight, with Larkin's advertisement for the other house before me, I feel not only in the position of a man attempting to sell a gold brick, but that I have a secret hankering for the gold brick myself. For rent for the season, large, handsomely furnished house on bay three miles from Oakville. Beautiful location. 32 acres, landscaped. Flower and kitchen gardens. Low rental. Yet I dare say we shall do well enough. After all, there comes a time when ambition ceases to burn, or romance to stir, and the highest cry of the human heart is for peace. Here, I feel, is peace. I have brought with me those books which all the year I have promised myself to read, so that my small room overflows with them. A spare notebook or two for this journal, to be filled probably with the weights of fish and the readings of the barometer. Jane for solid affection, Edith for the joy of life, and Jock for companionship. But the latter I am questioning tonight. Jock has deserted me. He will not occupy the window seat of my room, although his comforter is neatly spread upon it. When I showed it to him, he leaped up obediently, then glanced out the window toward the main house, emitted a long and melancholy howl, and with an air of firmness not to be gainsaid, retired onto the bed in Jane's room, which faces toward the high road. Nor could I later coax him past the main house for a moonlight stroll upon the beach. He joined me there later, having reached it by some devious route of his own through the marsh, but without enthusiasm. Later, there has been wild excitement here, and only now have we quieted down. 
it is clear that already Clara has heard some of the local talk. At eleven o'clock we heard wild screams from Clara's attic bedroom, and all three of us arrived there in varying stages of undress. Clara was outside her door, which was closed, and was hysterically shrieking that there was a blue light under her bed. I opened the door, entered the room, which was dark, and stooped down. There was a blue light there, luminous and spectral, and my very scalp prickled. I think had it not been for the women outside, I would have howled like a dog. And the worst of it was that it had an eye, a large staring eye that gazed at me with all the concentrated malevolence in the world. It was a moment before I could say in an unshaken voice, Turn on the lights, somebody. There was a delay until the switch was found, and for that moment the blue light stared at me and I at it. I heard Edith flop down on the floor beside me and give a little yelp, and Clara sniveling outside and saying she would never go into that room again. Never. Then Jane turned on the lights, and I saw under the bed the large phosphorescent head of a dead fish, brought by Jock from the beach and carefully cached there. June 27th. I have found Uncle Horace's letter, and in a manner so curious that there can be, it seems to me, but two interpretations of it. One is that, somehow, I have had all along a subconscious knowledge of its presence behind the drawer. But I hesitate to accept that. I am orderly by instinct, and when I went over the desk after his death, the merest indication of a paper caught behind the drawer would have sent me after it. The other explanation is that I received a telepathic message. It came, as I fancy such messages must come, not from outside, but from within. I heard nothing. It welled up, above the incoherent and vague wanderings of a mind not definitely in action, and in a clear-cut and definite form. Take out the bottom drawer on the right. But if I am to accept telepathy, I am to believe that I am not alone in my knowledge of this letter. Yet considering the tone of it, the awful possibility it indicates, who could have such a knowledge and yet keep it to himself? How did it get behind the drawer? If the brownish smudge on the corner turns out to be blood, and I think it is, then it was placed in the drawer after he died. Annie Cochran and Thomas both deny having seen any paper about. The doctor, perhaps? But would he not have read it first? It had been crumpled into a ball and thrown into the drawer, and the subsequent opening of the drawer had pushed it back out of sight. So much is clear. But, after he fell, suppose, and in the privacy of this journal I must surely let my imagination wander, suppose, then, that some other hand picked up this paper, ignorant of its contents, and in a hurried attempt to put the room in order flung it into the drawer? Or toward the wastebasket beside it and it fell short? Suppose, in a word, that he was not alone when he died. Suppose that some other hand, again, turned out the desk light and the others, and somehow overlooked the dim red lamp in the next room, or left it to see the way to escape? I must not let my nerves run away with me. Murder is an ugly word, and after all we have Hayward's verdict of death by heart failure. But a sufficient shock, or a blow, might have brought that on. Fright, even, for the poor old chap was frightened when he wrote that letter. Trembling but uncompromising. That was like him. Quote, I realize fully the unpleasantness of my own situation, even if you are consistent, it's danger, but... Close quote. But what? But in spite of this, I shall do as I have threatened, probably. I am profoundly moved tonight. We did not love one another, but he was old and alone, and menaced by some monstrous wickedness. Just what that wickedness was, no one can say, but I fully believe tonight that he died of it. This morning I went with Edith to the main house, she to select some odds and ends for the boathouse, against holidays coming, and I had to clear out the library desk to have it moved to the lodge. Edith was in high spirits as I unlocked the front door, and was gravely telling Thomas, who accompanied us, that we had seen a blue light under Clara's bed the night before. But he expressed no surprise. Plenty of them, folks tell me, he said. First time I've heard of them in the lodge, though. Oh, said Edith, slightly daunted. So there are lights, too? Yes'm, he replied. Annie Cochran, she had one here, used to hang around the shower bath off the gun room. And there used to be plenty outside. Fellows sudden trawl out in the bay used to see him over the swamp. Marsh gas, I suggested. Maybe, he said with his take-it-or-leave-it attitude, and we went into the house. 
There Edith and Thomas left me, and I opened the shutters of the library and sat down at the desk. I could hear Edith insisting on seeing the shower bath off the gun room. Then their voices died away, and I began to go through the desk once more. All important papers had been taken away after the death, and the drawers contained the usual riffraff of such depositories. Old keys, ancient checkbooks, their stubs filled in Uncle Horace's neat hand. Naturally, I was thinking of him. More or less, I was concentrated on him, if this is any comfort to my spiritualistic friends. He had, indeed, fallen out of the very chair in which I sat when he was stricken, and had apparently cut his head belly on the corner of the desk. All this was in my mind as I closed the last drawer and surveyed the heap of rubbish on the desk. I suppose I was subconsciously reconstructing the night of his death, when he had penned that word, danger, which now lay clearly outlined in reverse on the blotter, and that when I wandered into the den, looking for a place to store what Lyra calls the detritus piled up on the desk, I was still thinking of it. But I cannot think that my entrance into the room, or my idly switching on the red lamp which stood there, had the slightest connection with the message I seemed at that moment to receive. Take out the bottom drawer on the right. I have heard people who believe in this sort of thing emphasize the peculiar insistence of the messages, and this was true in this case. I do not recall that there was any question in my mind, either, as to which bottom drawer on the right I was to remove, but I must record here a rather curious incident which my spiritualistic friends would add to the picture as proof positive of its other earth origin. Edith came back. I could hear her in the library. I've found any Cochrane's blue light, she called. A piece of phosphorescent wood. No wonder this neighborhood's haunted. Then she came into the doorway with Thomas behind her and suddenly stopped. Why, she said, what funny shadows. Shadows? Then she laughed and ran her fingers across her eyes. My error, she said. When I came in, I seemed to see a sort of cloud under the ceiling. It's gone now. Old Thomas stood by quietly. Lots of folks have seen them shadows, he said. Some say they're red and some brown. I ain't ever seen them myself, so I can't say. He turned to go. Maybe it's phosphorescence, he said, and went away with a sort of hideous silent mirth shaking him. Behind the drawer I found the letter. Note, I made no copy of the letter in the original journal, so I give it here. Unfinished letter of Mr. Horace Porter, addressed to someone unknown, and dated the day of his death, June 27th of the preceding year. Quote, I am writing this in great distress of mind, and in what I feel is a righteous anger. It is incredible to me that you cannot see the wickedness of the course you have proposed. In all earnestness I appeal to you to consider the enormity of the idea. Your failure to comprehend my own attitude to it, however, makes me believe that you may be tempted to go on with it. In that case I shall feel it my duty not only to go to the police but to warn society in general. I realize fully the unpleasantness of my own situation, even, if you are consistent, it's danger, but... Close quote. The letter had not been finished. End of section 3